Okay, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Micah. Just a, just a very short verse here, but a very critical one and important one at that. The uh, minor prophet makes a prediction that is, has a significant implication. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Can you stand just for a moment as we read this short verse? And we're going to talk about uh, some of the implications of this in just a moment. Matt, or, or Mark, or <laughs> Micah, I, I could tell you a story, but I'm not going to. I, I don't have time. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. Well, if you've been with us, uh, we started for the Advent season looking at Christmas carols, some of those that we grew up with that we've sung, the church has sung for years and years, and, and trying to kind of ascertain, because sometimes we are so familiar with something, we, we kind of lose the mystery and the sense of, of truth that, that can be gleaned from these. And so I thought it'd be kind of an interesting experiment and, and exercise to go through some of these great Christmas carols and, and, and maybe see them in a fresh light and hear them in a fresh way. And this morning, I want to talk about the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Phillips Brooks was a young man who was already facing burnout in his relatively young ministry. In his mid-20s, Brooks became the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. He then persuaded a super salesman named Louis Redner to be a Sunday school superintendent and organist. Well, the church began to explode in growth. They began, listen to this, with 30 children in Sunday school, but by the end of the year, they had over 1,000 in Sunday school. The next two years, the numbers just continued to increase, partly due to, to Brooks's dynamic preaching and also due to the, to, to the musical ability of his friend Redner. But then came the Civil War, and you can imagine what that would have been like. The mood of the church turned somber. Women were wearing black. Why? Because their sons and their husbands had died. Darkness fell over the, every facet, it seemed, of the worship services, and it took its toll on Brooks. Brooks tried to be inspirational, he tried to be encouraging to his church, but it drained him. Things didn't get better with the end of the war either. President Abraham Lincoln, as you remember, was assassinated, and the pain intensified because Phillips Brooks was the one who was invited to speak, be the pastor at uh, President Lincoln's funeral. So he reached down into his soul, and he found the appropriate words for the occasion but later he reported he was so burned out that he just didn't have anything left. He couldn't rekindle his own spiritual flame. So he asked the church for a sabbatical. He traveled to the Holy Land. On Christmas Eve in Jerusalem, he and several others began to mount horses and took off riding. It was a wonderful, life-changing afternoon for him. He prayed and spent time alone with God right there in the wilderness of Israel. At dusk, when the first light came out, first stars came out, he, he rode into the tiny village of Bethlehem. 
And it wasn't really at that time, you know, now it's bigger, it's commercialized to some degree, but at that point, it wasn't much different than probably what it was like in the birth, during the birth of Jesus. And it lifted Brooks's spirit to be there within a, a few yards or feet from where Jesus was probably born. There was, there was certainly a singing going on in the church of the nativity that he heard. And so he felt suddenly surrounded by the very spirit of God. And so he wrote in his diary that night, again and again, it seemed as if I could hear voices I know well telling each other of the Savior's birth. And before dark, we rode out of town to the field where they saw the shepherds and the angel. And as we passed, indeed, we saw shepherds still keeping watch over their flocks. Somewhere in those fields, we rode where the shepherds must have been. Well, as it grew dark, Brooks sat on that hillside and he looked back at the flickering lights at the small village of Bethlehem. He says his soul began to stir. He later told friends that the experience was so overwhelming that, that it caused him to rejoice that he would ever have a song in his soul. It was life-changing. Well, a few weeks later, he was back home. He was back standing before his congregation, and he tried to express to them what had occurred there on the, the hillside near Bethlehem, but he found that the words failed him. Well, three years later, he was reflecting on that night again outside of Bethlehem, and he decided to put his thoughts to a poem. Three years later, uh, he writes this poem, he wrote it down, and he shared it with his friend, Louis Redner. Redner knew instantly it needed to, to have a tune composed with it, but Redner worked and worked and nothing came, until that is on Christmas Eve. Suddenly, a tune popped into his mind while he was lying in bed. He got up, he wiped the sleep, I'm sure, out of his eyes, and he discovered that the words matched exactly the tune and they fit perfectly together. And so, on Christmas morning, 1868, O little town of Bethlehem was sung and made complete. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now I want to just look at some, some things that this, this poem, this song, kind of reinforces uh, for us in our faith. One, I want you to notice that God chooses a small town in which to have his savior born let's face it Bethlehem was not impressive the population is estimated to have been somewhere between 150 maybe 200 people in Bethlehem at the time so it, it was not an important crossroads there were no notable resources it was just a quiet shepherding community noted for two things one it was famous for the fact that it was the birthplace of king david israel's greatest king but two there was this this prophecy that that bethlehem would again give give reign and opportunity for the birth of the messiah who would inherit david's throne 700 years 
earlier. The prophet Micah had written these words, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to rule in Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. You see, this Messiah had, had, had always been planned for. He had always been. And so one day, God comes through an angel, Gabriel, to visit a young girl named Mary. But she lives in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is 75 miles north of Bethlehem. And the angel told her that she indeed would become the mother of the Messiah, the long-promised one. Now, the Bible says this, that the angels desire to look into the spiritual matters. In other words, there, there, there's good evidence the angels didn't fully understand the mystery of God's redemptive plan until it completely unfolded. So, so I imagine that Gabriel himself must have been puzzled. Maybe he thought, wait, wait a second here, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I wonder how the piece of this puzzle is all going to fit together. But Luke, well, he gives us the answer. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, I'll stop right there and just say, wow, how ordinary, how typical. Caesar, being leader, was about to levy a new tax. He was using the, the ruse of a, of a census, but in reality, it was in order to collect more money. Leave it to a politician to figure out how to get some more funds. But I, I, I suspect that this wasn't welcome news to Mary or Joseph. I mean, think about it. You're nine months pregnant. It would be inconvenient, to say the least, to have to make the trip, and expensive, too, because you've got a tax to pay, never mind the expense of the trip itself. How could Caesar be so insensitive Proverbs 2.1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it its water, as, it, like a water course wherever he pleases. You see, God is in charge here. He's putting the pieces together. Caesar thought he was going to raise some taxes, but he was really just fulfilling God's plan. And so Messiah is born here in Bethlehem. Now, there's an old saying, you've probably heard it, big doors turn on little hinges. God often selects small places to do big things. A famous cartoon used to be printed in newspapers across the country on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It showed two Kentucky farmers sitting across, or standing across a rail fence, and one asked the other farmer, anything new? The other responded, nope, nothing new. Oh, they do say that Nancy Lincoln gave birth to a baby boy in her cabin the other night, but nothing really ever happens that's important around here. The Bible says that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. O little town of Bethlehem. Now this is where I'd like to go this morning. You know, if you think about it, isn't it amazing for all of God's bigness, God 
shows a remarkable love for the small. Jesus said, God takes note when a sparrow falls. And he was doing that as evidence of how much more he cares about you. He has the hair on your head numbered. He cares about the small things. He cares about them. He cares about you. When I was fairly young in ministry here at North Olmsted, several, many, many years ago now, I, I took a mission trip to Cambodia with Dr. John Williams. Some of you might remember Dr. John. He was general superintendent of our, of our yearly meeting. And, and I, I, I saw him as a giant in the faith. He was a godly man, a good man, a compassionate man. He looked like Jesus, you know, he, with the beard and all. He was just a gracious man. And what a privilege it was to spend some time with him. But one of the things I noted about his ministry, which from a, you know, an ambitious young pastor wanting to do great things and big things, I, I, I couldn't get over the fact that Dr. John always seemed to spend a considerable amount of time in, in the small churches in the eastern region. He would do revivals and teachings and go to preach there. And, you know, these churches of 15, 20, 30, maybe 40 people. And, and I finally got him, uh, uh, had some time with him while I'm on this trip to Cambodia. And I asked him, why in the world do you spend so much time in these small churches? You could be doing some big things. He always seemed to be doing that. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. He took that from Scripture. After Israel had experienced exile, they had been in Babylon, they came back to, to the promised land. Jerusalem was a waste. The temple had been destroyed. They tried to build it again. They tried to build the temple again, but it was not Solomon's temple any longer. Solomon's temple was beautiful and big and opulent and gorgeous but they built this little hut. And the, the scripture says the old people cried. They wept. It was nothing. But the prophet reported that God was saying this to them. Who are you, O great mountain in Zechariah? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace grace to it whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice in other words God was going to do great things in that small place you know Dr. John looked at me and he said Jeff where did you come from I said Fulton Creek you know Fulton Creek if any of you have been to Fulton Creek no none of you have been to Fulton Creek not a big church he says you know we get more pastors from Fulton Creek than any other ch church in our denomination God does great things in small places you know I think that's probably one of the reasons I have never aspired to really go anywhere but minister right here one of the reasons I, I guess I've been here for so long, I, I see God working here. Now, ha sometimes you have to look. Sometimes you have to choose to see it. But think about what he's doing. Think about 
the relationships and the camaraderie and the rejoicing. And we've established a ministry in Slavic Village. We see the campus beginning to grow and take off in Illyria. We, we have Malawi as our next frontier. We're, we're making a difference at Malone University. Jesus talks about being my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I see this little community in North Olmstead fulfilling all of those things. And I rejoice. Don't despise the day. Those small things. God chose a, a little place where his son would be born. But notice this too. God, God chose a peasant couple as well. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep. The angels keep their watch of wondering love. Let's face it, Jesus' parents weren't impressive. Certainly not in the world's eyes. Joseph was a carpenter. Now, being a carpenter, that's perfectly fine. It's a great profession. But in those days, they usually lived mouth or hand to mouth. They, they had to work hard and they didn't make much. Mary and Joseph were so poor. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when it came to time to sacrifice, because they had delivered a child, they went to the temple and they sacrificed not a lamb, which would have been the appropriate sacrifice, but they instead offered two young doves which, according to Leviticus 5-7, was the offering of the very poor. Mary, <laughs> she's just a little girl. Special in God's eyes, but the elite in Judea didn't know her. And if they did, it was only because she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. In fact, Mary, I think Mary was so young, I wonder if many of us in this room would have allowed her to take care of our own kids. Would we have let her babysit for more than maybe a few hours? So, so capture the image here. What, what Phillips Brooks is talking about is perhaps gathered all above the angels while mortals sleep, the angels are keeping their watch of wondering love. Is it going to be all right? Can they handle this? But God trusted them. Recently, I've been reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower. I love biographies and history, as some of you know, but I was interested to know early in his career, early in his career, he was facing a court-martial because he had fudged some numbers in the accounting area of, of his own housing allowance toward his benefit. It was a silly thing to do, and it was going to cost him his career. Imagine... World War II, no Dwight Eisenhower. But a general stepped in, had taken a liking to Ike, and found a way to remove the charge. But uh, 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 when you think about General Dwight David Eisenhower, he would become the supreme allied commander of forces in Europe and lead the D-Day invasion and the fight against Nazism. He eventually became president of the United States. But his beginning was not impressive. He was the third son of a failed merchant, a Midwest merchant, who turned uh, into a creamery worker. I chose a military career because West Point offered a free education. 
But he didn't excel at West Point. He was in the middle of his class. He embarked on his career, undistinguished as it was, as a staff officer. Starting as a middling rank of major, he held that rank for 16 years. When he first visited the White House in February 1942, they misspelled his name. That's how unnotable he was. It was listed as P.D. Eisenhower. They spelled it instead of H-O-W-E-R. They spelled it uh, H-A-U-E-R. So no one knew him. And yet he was commissioned to lead the invasion of North Africa. Initially, it was a disaster. The Americans were driven back about 85 miles that first week. U.S. casualties exceeded 6,000 men, and Eisenhower was humiliated and certain he would be called back. But Eisenhower studied his mistakes. He swallowed his pride. He shifted those who were serving under him. And I believe that God used that man who had never even commanded so much a platoon in combat to lead the world against Nazism. I found it interesting. General George S. Patton, you remember that guy? Salty as he might have been. When he witnessed Ike's career, he said, D.D. Eisenhower, the, the D.D. Dwight David in Eisenhower's first name, really stood for divine destiny. He said, God's hand is on that man. I wonder, I think he was right. You know, sitting in this room today might be a young person that no one is noticing. <laughs> he might not have the best grades. She might not have the most talent or the, the, the best looking, striking appearance. But you know, God is up to something in their life. God has his hand on them. God has his hand on her and him, and he will use them in a remarkable way. It might be to cure cancer. It might be to cure a disease or feed the hungry or preach the gospel or make enough money to, to, to help fund a ministry. God just loves to amaze the world with what he can do through small things and seemingly small people. Daniel 4.17 says God chooses some people so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. Listen, if you think you've succeeded and you've done something great, you think you got there, you're wrong. God put you there. God gave that to you. And you have to ask the question, Why? What does he want me to do by choosing me? So God chose a, a small town, and God chooses this, this peasant couple. But most amazingly, if you think about it, is this. He chose to enter the world as a helpless infant, a baby. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. I want you to think about how precious that gift was. 
You know, this time of year, we're, we're, we tend to be gift givers. Guys, have you ever bought your wife some jewelry and you're really not sure that she knows how much you paid for it? How expensive that is? You know, you're inclined to, you know, maybe just keep the price tag on the box so she knows what you spent or say something like, you know what, tomorrow I think I'm calling the insurance agent to make sure this is covered, you know, that kind of a thing. Because I don't know cheap jewelry from expensive jewelry, but I want her to know how much it's worth. Was there anyone in the world that knew how much Jesus was worth? When God gave his son, there was almost no indication about how valuable this gift was. He came to earth silently, humbly. They didn't even give him a room and an inn. He's born in a stable, laid in a manger. Talk about ordinary. Ron David said, sometimes the most delightful gifts are wrapped in the simplest packages, like swaddling clothes. In the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's son tiptoed in quietly, and the world slept. They didn't know. But, but that begs a question, doesn't it? Why did God choose to send Jesus into the world as a helpless baby? I mean, think about it. If, if you had come up with the plan to send your son as almighty God to earth, how would you have sent him? In tremendous power and acclamation and affirmation. Wouldn't it have been impressive to come with a mighty army and some trumpet soundings and, and, and lightning and thunder and all the works? Why not do it that way? To let them know how precious a gift it was. You know, I've thought about this over the years, <laughs> and, and, and I want to give you three thoughts. There are probably more reasons, but I want to give you three things to think about at least. Why did Jesus come as a baby? And the first one is this. I think that Jesus came not to just save us, but in fact to identify with our painful struggles. Someone imagined Judgment Day and people from all over, uh, all walks of life standing in line to be evaluated by the Almighty. Some of them began to mumble, who is God to judge us? I mean, he lives here in this perfect, protected environment. He doesn't know what we went through. So they formed a committee and developed a series of accusations against God. If he were going to judge them indeed fairly, he would need to experience some of the horrible abuses that they knew on earth. Well, survivor of the Holocaust said, let him be born to a despised race. A homeless man insisted, let him grow up in poverty. A grief-stricken teenager said, let one of his parents die and let him weep night after night. A man who grew up in a broken home cried, let the legitimacy of his parents be questioned and then grow up in a single parent home. 
A blue-collar worker said, well, let him have to work with his hands to make a living. The person who had been divorced complained, well, let him be betrayed by someone he loves. A prisoner of war bitterly suggested, let him be tortured and taunted by enemies who hate him. A terminally ill patient sneered, let him know he's going to die and then have to struggle for every breath. And so the accusations were made, and at the beginning, everyone cheered. But with each new charge, it began to dawn on them. God had already experienced each of those things. That's what Jesus came to do. Because when Jesus came, listen, he identified with our pain. He knows our struggle. He knows where you're hurting. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he was without sin. That's what he came to do. But second, and, and I think this is important, Jesus came as a baby to demonstrate his awesome power. Remember the Lord told Paul, Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. When you're the weakest, I get to be the strongest. What could be weaker and more helpless than a baby. And yet with that baby, I'm going to change the world. What's more impressive as a coach? A coach who wins the championship with an all-star team? Or a coach who takes ordinary, normal players and wins the, wins the big game? God has this way of just delighting and using the humblest of things to give him glory. God takes the small things, the weak things, to shame the strong and build them up and say, I did that. Look at what I can do. If God then can do that with what happened in little Bethlehem to, to a peasant couple, to, to a helpless baby changing the world, I begin to think, imagine what he could do with me. Imagine what he could do with our church. Imagine what he could do with you. You say, I'm too small. I'm insignificant. I don't matter. Oh, yes, you do. If you give yourself to God and you let him. But there's a third reason. And I thought about this. I think this might be maybe today the most important one for us to comprehend. I think the reason that Jesus came as a baby might just be to illustrate how God normally works in our lives. A couple having a baby is pretty ordinary. You see, when we, when we think about finding God, we think of what? We think of the dramatic. We think of, we think of, choirs singing, angels coming. We think that when God works, he's doing it with the drama and the supernatural. Uh, uh, but 
but sometimes when we read the scriptures, we always go to the, the highlights of the story and we go to the, to the times when he throws it down fire or he sends a flood or, or he speaks with a multitude of angels. We think of all those glorious things, but what we don't realize is often it was centuries and even thousands of years before God did anything like that. There was the, the day-to-day where people decided, am I going to follow him? Am I going to trust him? It was in the ordinary that God was working. You see, we want fireworks and, and the spectacular, and God can do that, and sometimes he does. But normally, he works quietly, patiently, almost silently in our lives. Elijah, he, he was looking for God and he wasn't in the, the violence of the wind. He, he wasn't in the terrible earthquake. He wasn't in the, the destructive fire. No. Elijah. Elijah. It was a whisper, a still, small voice. And, and if you know the humility of God, you begin to sense that, you see, God takes the ordinary little things of our lives, and that's where we come to know him. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You see, so often, it's really not the big things that, that matter the most. Very often, it's the little things. It's a timely word of encouragement. When I became pastor here, I was candidating. I'll never forget that moment when I, before I preached, I thought, man, this church doesn't fit Mary and I. This church has too many doctors and engineers, and it's, it's got people... I'm a farm boy. What will I do in suburban Ohio, in Cleveland? I, I just don't fit in. But then I went into the office of the interim pastor at that time. His name was Gerald Teague, and he was, he was a retired man, but boy, did he look the part. He was tall. He was good-looking. He had great, great white hair, gray hair, piercing blue eyes. And I'll never forget, as I'm nervous thinking about the message I was going to preach that morning, we were about ready to pray, but I simply asked him this question. I said, Pastor, what kind of pastor does this church need? And he looked at me, and he simply said these words. He said, Jeff, someone just like you. Now, I don't know if he was lying or what, but maybe he just wanted to get out of here, but touched my soul and I began to believe something different you see it's the small things it's, it's the phone call we make the, 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 the cookies you take to your neighbor the soup you bring to someone who's sick the opportunity we have right before us that may not seem all that significant but those things that God uses to change the world it's the ordinary things where God just begins to speak for listening. Phillips Brooks, again, the person who wrote this song once said, it is while you are patiently toiling at the little tasks of life that the meaning and shape of the whole of life suddenly dawns on you. Moment by moment, 
a little act of service, a little act of kindness, a willingness to just sit in his presence and wait on him. And he shows up. And he comes. And you're different. No, no supernatural stars and choirs, but just him. <laughs> and he's good. Listen, if you're looking for God in the melodramatic appearance, if you want all of the spectacular, all of the voices and the choirs and the thunder, listen, you're probably going to miss him. He could do all those things, but he usually doesn't. He doesn't overwhelm. He most often comes in quiet, unassuming ways. That's just who he is. He came to a, a little town and chose a peasant couple and came as a helpless baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Wow. Who would have thought? But maybe today that same God is whispering and he says, you know, it's time that you and I get right. This is your day. This is your season I want you to know how much I love you. I sent Jesus Christ so we could know each other forever. And you've heard that voice, and you feel it. You feel him speaking to you. It's still, it's small. And by the way, the scripture says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. You can tune him out. But don't. Keep listening. And decide to trust him. So we can pray with Phillips Brooks and the church that has now sung this for a century and a half. Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, but oh, come to us Abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Do you know that truth? He wants you to know it, especially this season. This is an opportunity for us to say, Lord, I know you. I want to know you better, and I want to walk with you faithfully. My time is up. Let's pray together. Father, will you come? We thought this was an ordinary, simple Sunday, and you would do some small things. But I suspect, Lord, that you want to do some great things, and big things, maybe in small ways. But today, someone in this room needs to say yes to you they hear your voice it's it's clear i pray they wouldn't resist lord i pray that we could learn to trust you with the ordinary times and that because we trust you lord you would take the ordinary opportunities we have right before us to make that phone call send a text of encouragement maybe share a meal Maybe just take note and say, hey, I've missed you. Or I really see something in you that's special. 
And I believe God is working. Help us, Lord. Help us to see in the small things, Lord, you want to do great things. And because, Lord, of Jesus, that every ordinary moment is not ordinary if Jesus is a part of it. And so, Lord, we give you this hour. We give you the rest of this week. We give you every moment. We pray, Lord, that the world will come to know more than the fact that you were born in a manger, but they would come to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. It is now our privilege, Lord, to worship him. May we adore him with our whole hearts. I pray this in your name.